0: The following is a special sports presentation of UltimateSportsTalk.com. Swung on, long drive, right field, and this one belongs to the Reds! UltimateSportsTalk.com now presents the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show. An in-depth look at the Cincinnati Reds and the Cleveland Indians. For the fifth consecutive year, we examine the teams and their progress throughout the baseball season. And now, the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show. Hi again, everyone, and welcome to another Ohio Baseball Weekly Show. I'm Dave Mitchell, glad to have you along this evening on Ultimate Sports Talk, where tonight Mark Donahue and I will sit back and talk about what was really one of the most successful weeks for both teams combined, the Cleveland Indians and the Cincinnati Reds. The Reds finished 4-1 and last week, and the Indians finished 4-2. and And as we head down south to our resident Reds expert, Mark Donahue, Mark, just when you think you can throw the dirt on top of both teams, they come out and they tease us with a week that they had last week.
1: I think the old saying that a team is never as bad as their worst losing streak or never as good as their best winning streak is probably accurate. I don't think anybody thought the Reds were really that, you know, a horrible team when they were 0-9. And I doubt everybody thinks they're going to win the World Series because they beat Washington three in a row. But it's good to see both teams. And it's, it's interesting, I don't know if you've noticed, there's been kind of an ebb and flow that both teams have been up and down at about the same time except when the Indians beat the Reds last week. And uh, that preceded the Reds uh, having a great weekend against the Washington Nationals.
0: You know, what's really ironic about this season so far, Mark, is that you're right. These teams have almost mirrored each other. They've had problems hitting at the same time. They've had problems pitching at the same time. This weekend, they played teams in Washington and Seattle that were supposed to be the favorites in their division. And the Indians took three out of four from Seattle. And the Reds take three in a row from Washington. You really can't explain it except for that's the way the seasons go sometimes. It,
1: it, then it's true, Dave. And I think, if anything, you, you might look at the fact that Washington maybe came into Cincinnati not overlooking the Reds, but it, it, there's going to be a letdown. They're a first-place team. At one time, they had the best record in baseball. And they come into Cincinnati, who had lost nine of ten games, and uh, 10 out of 11 games actually and the reds just blow them away i mean the, the reds won those games rather handily and i don't think uh that washington had any idea uh that was going to happen but the reason it happened was because the reds got good young pitching and they had timely hitting what has been lacking from that team all year was was an evidence at Great American Ballpark this week, where the Reds uh, had a great on-base percentage, uh runners-and-scoring percentage uh, batting, and uh, that, that made all the difference in the world.
0: Well, and again, both teams did virtually the same thing, Mark. You talk about the pitching that the, the Reds got, but the way I understood it against Washington, they shut down Bryce Harper. And the same thing with the Indians against Seattle. They shut down both Robinson Cano and Nelson Cruz, and got some timely hitting, except for yesterday where they were two for 15 with runners in scoring position and still ended up winning a, a 12-inning ball game. But, again, both teams played pretty much the same way.
1: Yeah, and the Reds, uh, their defense stood up. And the thing that if you if you want to look, obviously, with the glass half full, as you should after a sweep of a first-place team, uh, maybe a look into the future. Uh, the Reds had three rookies going this week, DiScalfani, uh, Rachel Iglesias, and Lorenzen, and they all acquitted themselves very well. Uh, Iglesias pitched better than the numbers indicate. He, he hung a curveball to a guy for a three-run home run, but you take that away. And uh, he had a very good outing, had eight strikeouts in five innings. And the Reds got some live arms, and uh, we can talk later how that might impact some decisions. The Reds are going to have to make between now and the trade deadline. And if you look on uh, the rumor mill on the Internet, uh, Johnny Cueto is the, uh, well, he's he's the goal of many a, a team in the, in the National League and the American League, for that matter. The, the latest being Houston, that uh, is very interested in going after a number one starter. And, uh, boy, there's so many surprises in, in baseball this year, Houston being one. But the biggest surprise to me is Minnesota in the Central Division of the American League. Uh, I don't think anybody he picked that team to be where they are on June 1st.
0: No, and especially me. I anticipated Minnesota to be one of the worst teams, but right now they're playing some good team baseball. And like I said, Mark, I thought the team that was playing the best in baseball right now as of last week was the Houston Astros, and I was going to hold this story till the towards the end of the show, but let's talk about it right now since you brought up one of the things about the Astros. And, and the possibility of Cueto going there, well, maybe you ought to be after this first-round draft pick that they had back in 2014, Derek Fisher. Did you hear what he did yesterday? I did not. In the California League, he made his debut for the Lancaster Jet Hawks, which is Houston's Class A advanced affiliate, and in five plate appearances on Saturday's game, he drove in 12 runs.
1: No, I think we're going to wait for a better player. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that that may be the Walt Jockety method. Let, let's just see if we can get a little bit more. But the good news about Cueto, though, Mark, is that his arm appears to be sound and he's going to start the game against Philadelphia tomorrow night.
1: That's right, and I think that uh, bodes well for a number of things. Uh, you know, if the Reds are to have any hope of getting back into this thing, and let's face it, the chances of catching the Cardinals... Uh, On June 1st, when you're 10 and a half games behind, it it happens. It's happened before. The number of times it has happened is very, very small. It's a small number. It happened before with the Reds, remember? But it happened in 1973 with the Reds. They were 11 and a half games behind the Dodgers, I think, at the All Star break, or at July 4th. They actually caught the Dodgers. But again, uh, that's what, 30, 37, 47, 50 years ago, almost 45, 50 years ago. So that's not going to happen very often, and uh, if it does happen, um, you catch your lucky stars, but you can't build your team around hoping to come back from 11-game deficits. But the Reds are only four and a half or five games back of the wild card, and this tough decision is going to be for the Reds. Do they stick with their starting rotation of Cueto and maybe Mike Leak, or do they just say that 2015 is a rookie year and we're going to go with the, the this young staff, we're going to bring up uh, Moncott from the Miners and maybe we'll bring up Stevenson, see what they got, and go into 2015 with with a, basically a, a rookie staff?
0: Well, what do you think they will do?
1: I think they're going to trade Cueto. I, I don't think there's any way in the world the team would take the risk of signing Johnny Cueto. And I think the alarm bells probably went off uh, when he had this injury. Now, it appears that this injury is minor. Uh, it's more more inflammation and soreness. But boy, if you sign another player to a contract like they did Joey Votto, and the results they've gotten so far with Joey Votto obviously have not been what they'd hoped, and they just cannot afford to have another contract like that on the books. It's, it's just that simple. I love Johnny Cueto. I hope the Reds could afford him, but the fact of the matter is they can't. And I, I think if you if you look at that young pitching staff in the minor leagues, what they have in the, on the roster right now, and we haven't even included Cingrani into that mix, and he, he will be a starting pitcher someday. Uh, you've got the makings of a great young pitching staff, and the question is now, do you need Cueto, even from a production perspective, if you can keep him, even if you could afford it? Or do you trade him, and what could you get for Johnny Cueto and Mike Leak? You could get a lot. And it's just a matter of the Reds, given the fact the Reds have a strong pitching uh, staff in the minors waiting for them, and on the current roster, uh, what they don't have are strong position players. And that's where a trade uh, you know, could, would do well to help the Reds. But uh, there's a lot of teams with a lot of depth out there, uh, the Dodgers being one, uh, Houston probably having one of the better minor league systems in baseball, and, of course, Kansas City. All three of those teams have been leaked, linked to Johnny Cueto, and that doesn't include what they can get from Mike Leek. So I think if they go ahead and trade Cueto, the the position is going to be, well, if we trade Cueto, let's trade Leak. Let's, let's load up. And don't forget, they get an round, 11th round pick next week in the draft. And if they were to finish down this year, which is not unlikely given uh, where they are in the standings, uh, they could have a, you know, a fourth, fifth, sixth round pick next year. So all that bodes well for the future if you can hold your nose and get through 2015 and 2016.
0: Mark, I want to ask you this question about the, the yeah. Cueto deal and even the Mike Leak deal. If they possibly happen, would you, if you're Walt Jockety, and I I know we're we're trudging into unproven territory as far as trying to investigate the mind of a Walt Jockety, but nonetheless, do you try to hold out and maybe get rid and include a Jay Bruce in a deal with Johnny Cueto or Mike Leak and take less prospects back in return so you can unload? his contract and get him off the books or do you keep jay bruce in a deal and get more prospects back and just sort of eat up jay bruce's contract if
1: you're the reds every deal is predicated on who you can get so I, I don't think they would necessarily just link jay bruce to a deal to to reduce payroll uh, i think jay bruce is not under he doesn't have a kind of contract that jay bruce has or that uh, Joey Votto has so I think there's more flexibility with Jay Bruce, and, it, and he, he's hitting a, a little bit now. He's up to 225, which sounds terrible, but that's better than he was two weeks ago at 160. <clears throat> so I think the, the strategy will be, as, as it always is, I think, what can we get? Uh, if you give me that kid from Houston you mentioned, if he's as good as his numbers of his first game, uh, yeah, you, you know, you throw that in there uh and you you try to make uh a bigger deal but i i don't think they're going to do it just to cut payroll arbitrarily they want to maximize their return and if they can get more by trading Queto and Mike Leak uh i don't think they're going to put a contingency in there that somebody's going to pick up Jay Bruce's contract uh because they're they're going to need offense and uh you know the the, the key to this team's failure this year so far has been lack of offense. And what has become an incredible black hole, it's it's uncanny. Uh, left field for the Reds is something that has just been horrific since Adam Dunn has left. And there's just nobody, apparently, that can step up and hit more than 200 or 210. That's what Marlon Burr is hitting. He's got a few home runs, but Uh, You know, look at Ryan Ludwig last year, and and going back even further than that, the Reds have not had any production out of left field. So if you ask about Jay Bruce, I would look at what I can get in left field, Uh, a player that can be productive immediately, have a high on-base percentage, uh, but I would not lump him into a deal just to reduce payroll.
0: See, I would lump him into a deal, and I would lump Brandon Phillips into a deal also, combine those two salaries, and if I'm the Reds, then I go out during the offseason and try to sign a Yenis Cespedes. He's a left fielder, he can play center field, he's your automatic cleanup hitter, and he's a right-handed power hitter, and you can build the team around him, because he's still only 26, 27 years old.
1: Don't you think, though, he has he has been overhyped?
0: No, not at all. Uh, I... I, I think I think in Boston last year, with, with Oakland, he was playing in a dungeon. Let, let's face it, that, that, that coliseum as they call it you might as well call it a mausoleum (laughs) he he just you couldn't hit anything out there and he was still averaging 25 home runs during his three years with oakland he goes to boston and yes it's a band box you you can hit home runs out of there but he had nobody around him in the batting order david ortiz last year was having a terrible year and everybody knows boston was bad a year ago now he goes to detroit He's playing some great baseball with the Tigers right now, why would, and he's a free agent.
1: I know, but why would the t- Tigers not re-sign him?
0: They can't afford it.
1: Well, if if he, they,
0: They've signed everybody else. They've got Verlander to a contract. They've got Martinez to a huge contract. They've got Cabrera to a huge contract. By the way, Cabrera is coming up for free agency also.
1: Yeah, but he's uh, he's untouchable for the Reds. But uh, getting back to is if Detroit can't afford him, how could the Reds?
0: Oh, I think you could get Cespedes for somewhere in the area of around thirteen, fourteen million, and if you get rid of Bruce and Phillips, right there's your thirteen, fourteen million.
1: Yes, but you're weakening yourself at two positions to pick up one, so you're re- replacing one black hole with another. You're still gonna have to go get another outfielder.
0: Right, I understand that, but if you're looking at those two guys, Mark, by the time the Reds become a winning team again, they're not gonna be in the. The Phillips and Bruce are not going to be in the picture
1: No, I agree with that I, I just don't think that you're going to get a lot for Brandon Phillips at, at his age Although he's been very productive this year Not very productive, he's sitting 291 uh, he's, he's got what 3 or 4 home runs 20, 25 RBIs So he, he's, for a second baseman I think he's doing very well But the Reds If you keep Bruce, you have to get one outfielder If you get rid of Bruce, you've got to get Two outfielders and that's assuming that you believe that Billy Hamilton is going to be the guy that's going to anchor down your center field position. And, uh, you know, his average has not been above 225 all year. So I, I don't know that the Reds have the luxury of giving up on Jay Bruce to get Cespedes, And I'm not sure how much they gain by doing that.
0: I think they gain a tremendous amount. But that – I'll tell you what, you could go after Jerry Sands. This guy – with the Cleveland Indians, when he comes up and he plays for them as a right-handed outfielder or first baseman, Mark, he hits the baseball. On Saturday, he hit a two-run home run to help the Indians beat Seattle in that ball game, four to three. And then the Indians designate him for assignment on Sunday. I don't know where in the world these guys' are heads are at. This guy has hit over 450 in 20 games for the Indians this year, and. He suddenly just, just can't play, and they're looking for hitting. They're looking for right-handed hitting, and he can't play for the Indians. I, I've definitely got a problem with that. It's on the Reds. Hey, why not pick this guy up? Designate he, he's All they got to do is pick him up.
1: You mean uh, they DFA'd him?
0: They DFA'd him.
1: Holy cow.
0: Yeah. I, it, it's amazing. I don't know what, you know, and yet we continue, Mark, as the Indians, and, and I, I guess I'm going to poo-poo this week that we had, you know, finishing 4-2 and two on the week. Right now we're 24-26, and six-and-a-half six games behind Kansas City. We're three games out of the wild card. And we're doing it with the most pathetic left side of the infield you've probably ever seen in Lonnie Chisholm Hall and Jose Ramirez. I am just so fed up with these two guys, Mark. I If they're not going to bring up Lindor, then put a Villies at short – and put Zach Walters at third. And let's just call it a day. Because these two guys, Mark, they yesterday, all they needed out of Ramirez in the eighth inning was a ground ball to score a run that would have won the game in, in nine innings. They would have been able to win that game against Seattle. And Ramirez couldn't even touch the ball. He stood there and swung at the first two pitches and then took a call to strike three. And Tommy Tom Hamilton on the radio, even called it the most unproductive out he's seen this year as far as the Indians are concerned. This guy has just become an absolute joke at shortstop for the Indians. And yet, he's probably bought himself another, I'm going to say another three weeks, on the Major League team, because now all of a sudden they've started
1: winning. Uh, What's Lindor hitting down in uh, the minor leagues?
0: He's hitting about two fifty. but again, as I said, I am not concerned about him coming up and hitting. I'm not. He could come up and hit 200, and he would be a 100% improvement defensively over Ramirez. I'm not concerned about Lindor's hitting. I don't care if he comes up and hits 200. I want an excellent defensive shortstop for the pitching staff that this team has. When you look at Corey Kluber, Mark, his last four starts, do you realize he's got more strikeouts in his last four starts than any pitcher in Major League history, with the exception of Randy Johnson, even more than Nolan Ryan.
1: That's amazing.
0: Yeah. I mean, and and Trevor Bauer is pitching well. Carlos Carrasco is going tomorrow night. He's pitching well. Sean Markham pitched a good ball game for the Indians on Saturday. They've got a good pitching staff, but you cannot continue to go with an error-making left side of your infield In Chisholm Hall and Ramirez, the way you've got it set up. You cannot continue to do that. And Trevor Bauer even said the other night, which kind of got him in hot water with the the, uh, Indians front office, he made the comment after the game that, hey, I gave up two runs and we didn't win. What else am I supposed to do?
1: Yeah, that will get you in trouble with your teammates. (laughs) It
0: it, it will. But unfortunately, you know, he gave up a two-run homer. Okay, I understand that. But when you've got punch-and-judy hitters like Lonnie Chisenhall and, and Ramirez in the lineup, Mark, I don't know how... in the, I mean, you complained about this a year ago with the Reds, especially with Zach Cozart not hitting the baseball. Well, I'll tell you, I would trade you even up right now, Ramirez for Cozart. No doubt about it. And I wouldn't even care if I got the Cozart from a year ago. It wouldn't bother me. This guy... As far as I'm concerned, Mara, you know, I'm going to get off my bandwagon here. He has no business being on a major league roster. None.
1: Well, with Cozart, uh, he's had a turnaround year so far this year. And uh, when when he does contribute offensively, uh, he's got to be in the top three shortstops in baseball because of what he does defensively. And when you add any kind of production offensively, like he had this week against the Giants, uh you, you have a very solid major league shortstop. So the, the problem for Zach has never been his glove. He's always been more than dependable glove-wise. He's got good range. He's got a great arm. Gets rid of the ball quickly. He's good on the double play. The problem has been he's not been able to make contact. And the other thing about Cozart people don't realize, when he was in the minor leagues, he stole over 30 bases in two, two different years. The guy can run a little bit. So he's, he's the guy who may not be quite as athletic as some of the shortstops I see out there, but uh, he certainly is making a contribution this year.
0: Oh, I agree with you. I, I think Zach Cozart has made a tremendous improvement. And I, I'm not sure if it's the hitting coach that's been working with him or what the situation has been with Cozart, but if Jay Bruce would do the same thing, Mark, if he could get – his proverbial head from where <laughs> another spot in his body off, and, and and start concentrating on what's going on at the plate. I think the Reds could get back into this thing with their pitching, but unfortunately, what what the Reds have got is the same situation that the Indians have got. You've got two black holes in your lineup, and I know you say Jay Bruce has been hitting, but you look at Billy Hamilton and and Marlon Byrd. Yeah, okay, he's hitting about 210. 220, but he's not hitting anywhere near what he has done in the past. And he's not really even hitting up to the capabilities of Ryan Ludwig over the last two years, which is really surprising. I thought Bird was going to be a great improvement over Ludwig, and it's turned out not to be. How how do you think right now the Reds would feel if they may have felled out the Angels to pick up Josh Hamilton again?
1: Yeah, that's an interesting deal. And, uh, you know, I was actually happy to see Josh hit that game-winning double yesterday. He had a couple home runs on Friday night. Uh, maybe Texas is the place that he, you know, he can blossom again. He had so much success there before, and, and hopefully he'll come back. But, you know, the rents just don't take chances. They just don't. And, unfortunately, they could have picked up Josh Hamilton for next to nothing, I guess. Uh, but, uh, um, they decided not to. They wanted Marlon Bird in left field, and he's hitting 209. And although he is hitting 209, he does have 10 home runs, and he's driven in 25 runs, so that's not, that's not awful from that position. But, uh, when you hit 209 going into June 1st, yeah, it's gonna be awfully difficult to get your average even up to the, the 240s and 250s by the end of the year. These numbers don't work in your favor unless you have a, Unbelievable, you know, month and hit uh, four or five hundred, right? And that I don't think that's going to happen with Marlon Byrd.
0: You, you know, and the people may be listening right now and saying to me, "Okay, hey Dave, so how did the Indians do? How have they how have they done so well?" Well, I'll tell you how they've done so well, Mark, and that is with with Chisenhall and Ramirez not hitting. It's been Jason Kipnis that has really been the stalwart for this ball club. One move that Terry Francona made at the beginning of May was put Kipnis in the leadoff spot and drop Bourne down to the seventh spot, and that strengthened both the first spot in the batting order and the seventh spot in the batting order. Because Kipnis, in the month of May, this is just May alone. This is not cumulative of April and May. Don't get me wrong. This is in the month of May. Jason Kipnis had 51 hits and 30 runs in 29 games in May. He's now batting three forty. The last major leaguer mark to have at least 50 hits and 30 runs in one month was Jimmy Rollins, who did it in September and October of 2005, and the last American League batter to do it was Derek Jeter in August of 1998. And for the Indians... You've got to go all the way back to 1938 to find somebody who did that in the same month. And that was a guy named Jeff Heath. To be honest, I've never even heard of. I've heard of the Heath candy bar. I've never heard of Jeff Heath.
1: Yeah, 50 hits a year, of course, points out that you're going to have 300 hits for the season, to put that in perspective. So that's going to be uh, hard to replicate. But, uh, you know, I think it's amazing, uh, and I can't explain it, even having played the game uh, for a lot of years why your psyche changes in a different hitting position. And I remember if I were to hit third or fourth, I always felt, well, I'm here because they want me to drive in runs. And I would take a bigger swing. i take a longer swing. And I let off a couple times, more than a couple times, and I hit hit down in the order maybe seventh or eighth a few times. Uh, And it does change your approach to the plate, even if you're not cognitively thinking about it. Uh, I know when I let off, I would switch head a lot, and I try to go to the opposite field, try to get on base, chop the ball down, try and beat out infield hits. And then you go hit third or fourth, you start widening your stance, and even when you don't, you don't think about it. But making a change like that, Kipnis obviously has a, has a, a adopted the, whatever the psychology is that requires you to hit first. And uh, uh, you know this guy could end up having 200 hits this year.
0: He's really done an outstanding job, and he's making everybody believe that the Indians were correct in signing him to that long-term contract just two years ago. Of course, last year he had the oblique injury, and even he admitted that he never did get back into good game-playing shape. But now this year he's completely healthy, and he's playing an excellent defensive second base, and he's playing well in that leadoff position. But then, again, importantly was the fact that Michael Bourne has dropped down to the seventh spot, and he started hitting the ball now. Over the month of May, he hit 350, Mark, hitting in that seventh position. Unfortunately, he's got Chisholm Hall batting eighth and Ramirez batting ninth, so the bottom part of the batting order still really isn't doing anything of, of any consequence for the Indians, and they haven't. When those two guys hit, they win. If they don't hit, which they haven't hit, they've got a 50 50 shot at winning. And and another guy that has really come out in May has been Nick Swisher. Now, they're not playing him a lot. They're trying to ease him back into the lineup. Same way with Jan Gomes. Now, Jan Gomes, there's a real big reason for that. He's coming off of that MCL sprain on his knee, and with him catching, they just don't want him to catch two days in a row right now. So they're alternating Perez and Gomes at the catching spot. And and that's really helping Gomes to get back into game-playing shape. And sooner or later here, probably in about the next week, he'll start catching two games in a row. But they need his bat in the lineup. But Swisher has come back, Mark, and, and I'll tell you, he's given the Indians exactly what they needed, a boost at that DH position. Since he's come back three weeks ago, he's hit a couple of home runs. He's driven in eight or nine runs. He's batting close to 280. He's doing exactly what the Indians thought he would do. When they got him, 20 home runs, 80 RBIs, 260 to 280 batting average, and that's all they've expected out of Swisher. And coming back after those two knee surgeries, they're moving him back into the lineup. So when you look at what's happening right now on June 1st, this team is only six and a half games behind Kansas City. They've got Kansas City coming up this week. They're going to be in Kansas City tomorrow night, Wednesday night, and Thursday night. I hate to say that a series in the, at the beginning of June is a big series, but I think this series with Kansas City starting out tomorrow night, I think it's a big series for the Indians.
1: Well, it's a chance for them to get back into the thing early enough that, you know, if they win four of those six games, uh, they pick up a couple games, and now, you know, if they win five, pick up four games. So uh, there's there's a chance that they can, uh, you know, make some headway now rather than trying to, make it all up at once in, in late August and September. But we were talking about, uh, you know, beating up Walt Jockety, uh, and deservedly so, I think, in some cases. But you have to give him credit for one deal he did make, which uh, I think may have been a deal that saved this team from utter disaster, and that's the signing of Brian Pena. Uh, he's had two very, very good years for the Reds, and he signed, he came out of Detroit, and uh, last year when Joey Vado was hurt, he stepped in at first base and did more than an adequate job defensively and also hit well. And this year he's leading the team in hitting, hitting 304, subbing in for Devin Miseracco, uh who signed a huge contract. Pena did not sign a big contract. I bet he wish he did. Uh, but he did not, I'm sure, anticipate playing as much as he has played this year. And even though he doesn't hit with power, uh, he he's very very good behind the plate. He's getting on base. He's got a three sixty five a three eighty six on base percentage, hitting three oh four, and he's he's been a lifesaver for the Reds for the last two years. So that was one of the good deals that Jockity made. Kind of an under the radar deal, but uh, boy, I hate to see where the Reds would be without him.
0: Well, you know what my father always told me when I was growing up, Mark. <coughs> Even a blind squirrel finds a nut.
1: Oh, I thought he was going to say something about you being too short.
0: (laughs) Well, that too. But although I do look eye-to-eye to to him, so I don't (laughs) think he'd go that far. But no, even a blind squirrel finds a nut. Of all the deals that Walt Jockety has made throughout his years with the Reds, yeah, you should be able to find one that he hit on, because even a blind squirrel will find a nut. And in this case... You've got a blind squirrel and Walt Jockety. You know, I got to ask you this question: Am I more negative about Walt Jockety, or was I more negative about Manny Acta? Uh, Manny Acta. Okay,
1: <laughs> but must, but it's close.
0: <laughs> you know, I, I had I had a party for thousands when Manny Acta was fired. <laughs> you know, it, it's called it's called Dollar Dog Night. That's right. That's right. Yeah. But anyway, you know. But here's another question. You know, from what I understand, the radio stations down in Cincinnati, especially Lance McAllister and Moegger, which they're really the two prominent and maybe the only sports talk shows hosts down in Cincinnati, they have really been fielding phone calls about the fans and how upset they are. About Brian Price, but I guess my question is, Mark: If people are that upset about Brian Price, are they actually longing for the day now when Dusty Baker was the manager of that team? We've never even talked about that.
1: Well, the only reason they would long for the days of Dusty Baker is the Reds won. And did they did they win a World Series? No. Uh, did they w- w- win a playoff series? No. But they made the playoffs. They won probably an average of 88 to 90 games a year that Dusty was there. So there was consistent winning baseball. That's what they missed. It could have been Joe Smith. The the manager wouldn't have mattered. They they missed the days not that long ago that the Reds were a contending ball club. When you're ten and a half games out of first place on June 1st, one could argue, gee, we're not competitive. And one would be accurate. So I, I don't think that uh, as long as Bob Castellini likes the manager, in this case he likes Brian Price. Uh, that guy is going to remain in that position in, unless it is perceived on the field and by the fans that the team has just given up on the manager. They've just—they're uh, not hustling, uh, they're not playing hard, all those things. And I don't think that's the case of the Reds now. But I'm telling you, you said you know a big series for the Indians coming up. Well, the Reds have a big nine games coming up. They play six against the Phillies, who have the second worst record in baseball, and they play a team San Diego that has a losing record. Now, if that, if they can win, say, seven of nine, six of nine at the least, they have to start winning a lot more, you know, than than losing. Then I think the pressure will be off Brian Price. But they just swept a, number, a, a a team that was number, you know, first place in their division. And now's a chance for them to make hay. They could pick up, say, three or four games in the Cardinals in the next nine, assuming the Cardinals don't go undefeated. But those, those are the kinds of series that you've got to win. The Reds should win at least two out of three in each of those three series. And if they do, all of a sudden, they're they're close to 500 again. And now you can start looking at the second half of the season and, and maybe contemplate the playoffs. But if they go out there and they lose, they win four and lose five or win three and lose six, I would think the season is just about done.
0: But wouldn't you agree that Dusty Baker proved that he was a better manager than Brian Price has shown that he is?
1: Well, I don't think anybody would would doubt that. Dusty Baker managed for, what, 25 years? Uh, Yeah, he's certainly a better manager, certainly on the bench manager. I would hope he would be. But it's not just managing, you know, when to hit and run and when to sacrifice. It's managing the players and what we don't have privy to. And I can't say I've heard Anybody make the accusation that Brian Price has lost control of the clubhouse? I've not heard any players badmouth him. Uh, not that that happens a lot. Uh, it's usually after a guy's fired, they say, oh, yeah, he was a jerk. Uh, but I've not heard that. And Brian Price is a smart guy. He's a cerebral guy. Uh, he, I think he's far more emotional than I thought he was. But that... that you know that is based on frustration, and the, the thing that I know you get on uh, Jockety a lot, and and I lose my patience as well because I don't think they do enough. They're not aggressive enough. But we don't know what the ownership is telling him to do, or what limitations they're putting on him. It it, it, does, it makes what frustrates me about is, is when you have a chance to sign Nelson Cruz for the same amount of money you spent on Ryan Ludwig, that is just a fundamental breakdown in your evaluation of talent. End of story. You can't argue any other position. You were given eight million dollars and you pick Ryan Ludwig. Yes, that that is just insane. And some of these pitchers they pick up, I, I Kevin Gray. Baden-Hop. Uh, who's the other guy that uh, drives me insane every time he comes in?
0: JJ Hoover. Well,
1: JJ Hoover is actually 4 and 0 this year. Uh, but the, Baden-Hop particularly and Greg, they, they it's batting practice. And how can you be so far off on your is it your scouting department? Are you making wrong decisions based on their input? Are you, you have the wrong scouts? Are you just making stupid decisions because those were stupid decisions? Why not? Maybe the Indians you see the same thing. Okay, they they signed um, Kevin Gregg and they signed Badenhop, and I think Badenhop got two million dollars and Gregg got a million and a half or something like that. Why not combine those, you know, three and a half million dollars and get a good pitcher, get a guy who can throw? Those guys can't. That they signed Jason Marquis. Are you kidding me? The guy's been lit up all year. And to me, those are decisions that really tee me off because they're not decisions that are limited by money. You could combine those three contracts, and now you've got 6 or $8 million that you could do something with over the next two years and sign somebody who can make a contribution to the team rather than three guys that are you saying that it's better to have three less than good pitchers on your staff just to fill it out? Or do you try to get somebody who can make a contribution and help you win this year? Those are the things that I, I wish somebody would explain it to me because I don't get it.
0: Mark, you know, we, it's something, one thing that we have not spent enough time on the show this, this year with is the fact that the Reds are hosting the All-Star game coming up in a month. And I think what would be fun, and I'm going to give you a homework assignment for next week, and I'll do the same thing. The balloting is going to be done. I think we need to vote for our all-stars, both American and National League, on the air next week. How about that? I'll give you that homework assignment. That would be great. And we'll do that. And And let's talk a little bit more about
1: Wait what's going
0: on whoa, whoa, whoa. with the Reds. Oh, no, all start okay. yeah, now yeah. are we
1: gonna vote what Dave and Mark would pick, or are we gonna vote what will be the results of the pan voting?
0: No, what Dave and Mark would pick, okay, right, which is probably different than what the results will be, probably <laughs> you know, but yeah, Mark, I want to go back to another thing that you just you just mentioned about the Reds sweeping Washington, and it made my mind go back to two years ago. Do you remember how much we complained about the Nationals and Davey Johnson and their general manager at the time, their decision not to throw Strasburg more than 150 innings that season, and they shut him down going into the playoffs, and we said during that time, you never know that if you're going to get back into that position again. And last year, Washington couldn't, couldn't get the job done this year. They're in a dogfight with the Mets, Mark. And I think that could be a dogfight for the rest of the year. They're not entitled to playoff appearances for the next three or four years. I think, you know, that's a decision that the people in Washington have to go back and look at. And, and you know, Mark, it's going to turn out, I think it's really going to turn out to be a bad decision that they made two or three years ago not to throw Strasburg in the playoffs.
1: Yeah, I don't know where this pitch count stuff comes from, because these, these kids, do people forget when they're in high school and college, they're probably throwing as many innings as they pitch professionally. The, the, the seasons these kids play, they start playing in December, and they're playing all the way through October in elite ball, in travel teams. Uh, innings don't bother those kids. It, it's, the, it's the stress of the certain competition you, you face, certainly, but in terms of throwing, like a fastball pitcher like Strasburg, that doesn't bother him. And I think you're right. And we said it at the time. You guys, if you have Strasburg, you're going to win the World Series. If you don't have Strasburg, you may not. You may not get to the World Series. Right. And they they had their chance. They they did not. They opted for you know protecting the pitcher. But my point is, I don't think that protects the pitcher. Uh, you can, it's its not innings at that level. Those guys are in such great shape. They, I, and I don't know where the magic number of 100 pitches per game, I, I don't know when that started. Why, why is it not 94? Or why is it not 116? I, I don't know what the magic number of 100. But as these guys approach that number, the, the, the bullpens get up and, uh, guys don't get a chance to finish what they start. And yet you go back, in the '50s, '60s, '70s, all the way into the '80s, guys throwing complete games, 120, 125 pitches, was commonplace back then. And you look at the, what the Braves did in the '90s with Glavin and Maddox and, and that team, the, the pitchers they had. My gosh, those guys were throwing far more innings than that, and, and leading the league in complete games. Uh, sure, John. I'm um, sure. Smoltz. John John Smoltz. I mean, they had a rotation. Steve Avery, all those guys, they all threw a lot of innings. So I don't know if this is the new normal. And if it is, where did it come from? Why 100 pitches?
0: And who was the Atlanta Braves pitching coach during that time?
1: Uh, the guy used to rock back back and forth on the bench.
0: Uh, Leo Mazzoni. It
1: was a starts with an M, Mazzoni, yeah.
0: Yes, Leo Mazzoni. And he was a proponent Of these guys throwing the ball every day. Yep. At least throwing the ball. But, Mark, here's the funny thing about it. Where's Leo Mazzoni now? Nobody will hire him. I just saw an article on SB Nation. It was about a week ago. That nobody will hire this guy. Why not?
1: Uh, Maybe they think he's too old.
0: Well, he's only 58 years old.
1: He looks like he's about 80.
0: Yeah, well... He's been rocking a long time. you know. But listen, listen to the accomplishments. In his 15-plus seasons with Atlanta, the Braves went to 14 straight division championships. They combined for four individual ERA titles, nine individual 20-win seasons, six Cy Young Awards, three plaques in Cooperstown. That's what he did as the pitching coach of the Atlanta Braves. But yet nobody... Will hire this guy, and to me, that, that's that's the biggest travesty I think I've seen.
1: Yeah, it's amazing. You know, your mind immediately raises, Well, what is there something besides baseball about Leo Mazzani that is is problematic for Major League Baseball? Because with that kind of resume, just on baseball alone, you would think that people would be knocking on his door every day. Uh, maybe he wants to manage. Maybe that's uh, he doesn't want to be a pitching coach, but. Uh, Gosh, those kinds of numbers and that pitching staff. And, you know, those none of those guys had what I'll call big arms, where they were power pitchers. But Greg Maddox and, and Tom Glavin, I mean, those two guys were as accomplished pitchers in terms of their stuff, their location, their their control. Their control was unbelievable. How good they were, and uh, they weren't throwing ninety-five. My, hell. Uh, Maddox barely got into the nineties he, he He seldom pitched in the nineties. Gladman when he was younger, pitched a little harder. but the last ten years of his career, I doubt either one of those guys uh, broached ninety degree uh, ninety miles per hour more than once or twice a game
0: no and the funny thing is is out of the guys that you mentioned, the guy with the biggest arm on that staff was Steve Avery, the left hander yeah and and he had the shortest career of them all.
1: Yeah, he he hurt himself. I think uh, his third or fourth year, and never recovered. But boy, when they had uh, Smoltz and Glavin and Avery and or, or, uh, Maddox, man, you hated to have them come in and on a three-game series, you facing those three guys. Whoa, that that was tough duty. And, then, and
0: remember, at one point in time, they had Dennis Martinez on that staff. Yeah, <laughs> he 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 showed up. They had Kent Merker. Yeah. I mean, they they were just amazing. But I was wrong. I want to correct myself. Leo Mazzoni is sixty six. Okay,
1: I thought he was. So
0: we've seen guys. We've seen guys older than that be pitching coaches.
1: Mark. Of course, and that, that you just casually mentioned the fact that these guys won fourteen consecutive division titles. That's unbelievable. You think about in today's sporting world, what other team has even come remotely close to that? Except the Boston Celtics back in, you know, the basketball days. Has there ever been a professional team that has done that? No. I mean, what no. accomplishment?
0: No, Nowhere near. Not not even close. Nowhere. I mean, first of all, they just started the divisional series back in 69.
1: Well, I know. So, e- even going back that far, no one's come close to doing it. Right. And it, certainly when the Yankees, when they were winning all those World Series... They didn't win fourteen pennants in a row, not even close.
0: No, no. Matter of fact, they were they were interrupted a couple of times by the White Sox and the Indians.
1: Yeah, yeah. You know, Bobby Cox, obviously Hall of Famer, uh, but what he did with Leo Mazzoni, those two guys running that organization, they had so much consistency in that in that organization. That's why they were, they were so good for so long. And people may forget. Before that uh, 14-year reign began, the Atlanta Braves stunk, and they stunk for a long, long time. And you know, the the late 60s through the 70s, through the 80s, they were a terrible team, terrible team. And then all of a sudden, they turned it around, and it started at the top with John Hart. I think it was John Hart, wasn't it, their general manager? No, uh,
0: who no, was? not not with Atlanta. It was, um, and I can't. Well, first of all, yeah, let me let me go back to that, Mark, because you brought up a good thing. A lot of people don't realize that Bobby Cox, that was his second stint with Atlanta. He was actually the GM first, then went to Toronto to become the the manager, and they fired him after two years, and then Atlanta hired him as manager, and that started the whole thing.
1: Yeah, and who was their general manager again? You, I lost you for a minute.
0: I think it was Sherholtz.
1: That's right, John Sherholtz. You're right, yeah. Yeah, Scherholz, he, he established some consistency, and what they did to build that organization, they did not uh, do the free agent route a lot. Uh, they developed their own, and they started with the pitching, and they had great bullpen, they had great middle relief, great pitch, starting pitching, but, you know, they had Ron Gant, and they had some other guys that could hit the ball, and they scored just enough runs to win. And there was a period there in, in when they were in the midst, you know, after six or seven years of winning in a row, that you just you just knew they were going to win the division, and the question was who's going to get the wild card, <laughs> or or you know that you knew they were going to be in the playoffs. What's strange about that team is they only won one World Series championship.
0: Yeah, who did that happen against?
1: I think it was a team from Northern Ohio, oh. but I'm not sure.
0: Right. You know, and the thing about it is too, Mark. During that time that they were winning divisional titles, they did it when there were only two divisions, and they did it when there were three divisions.
1: Yeah, they were an amazing organization, and uh, it's odd to see them, you know, not doing what they did before. And it's it, the other thing is strange about that organization. I was at Atlanta's ballpark once, and it—I I was there two or three years ago, I think—and it seemed brand new to me. It seems like wow, what a nice new stadium! And they're building a new one. Yeah, <laughs> it'll be ready in 2016, I think. Uh, kind of weird that they. I guess it'll be a baseball-only stadium. But uh, what do you do with the one they've got? Is that going to be a,
0: a? I. They're making a parking lot out of it. Jeez. Yeah, that, that's that's what I understand. Mark Matt Adams of the Cardinals, their first baseman, he's out probably for the year with that leg injury, how much do you think that's going to hurt the Cardinals, or is this going to be just another injury that they're going to be able to play around?
1: You know, I was thinking about that this morning when I saw that. Um, <clears throat> I did not see the injury uh, happen. Uh, I think it's going to have a big impact on the Cardinals, because I think their, their offense, if you remember last year, they were really weak offensively, and they won because of their pitching. And that offense is going to be reduced significantly. He's, he's a big chunk of that offense. And I don't know who they're going to put in there, but I'll tell you what. The Cardinals are the team, unlike the Reds, the Cardinals will go out and make a deal. You wait and see. They're going to have somebody else at first base who's going to come in there and hit 280, 290, you know, hit 20 home runs the rest of the year. And it's not that they're going to not miss Matt Adams, but the Cardinals are the kind of team that have the money, they know they're going to make the playoffs, and they'll do what is necessary. And I think they'll probably make the playoffs just based on their pitching alone, but their philosophy will be, okay, we know we're going to make the playoffs. We want to win the World Series. And I said it, I've said it for the last five years. The difference between the Reds and the Cardinals is the Cardinals start every year with the idea, we're going to win the World Series. What do we have to do? And the Reds don't. The Reds say, well, we're going to be competitive. We think we might be able to make the playoffs. And they don't take that next step that the Cardinals always do. Neither, Neither do the Indians. Indians. Well, that's why our teams don't win. Huh?
0: You, you, you know the you, know the, you, the, know, the you know the trade that I would love to see the Indians make right, right now? Go ahead. I'd love to see them go out and pick up Scott Casimir from the A's. That would really solidify this pitching staff.
1: Yeah, but, you know, I think your pitching staff... Oh yeah, I agree. Getting Casimir would be great, and he was—he had a great year in Cleveland two years ago, and I think he would probably welcome the opportunity to get out of Oakland. But like the Reds, you guys need another bat, and I don't know where you're going to put that bat. You could put him at DH, I guess. But if you go out and get another bat, I think the Indians, with the pitching staff they have, can be competitive the rest of the year and, and and sneak into the playoffs. If you go look, get a pitcher and a hitter, I think you've got a shot, a, a legitimate shot to make the playoffs. The the point being is, you just said it. The Indians don't do that kind of thing, and neither do the Reds.
0: No, they they don't. They absolutely do not, and that's, that's the sad thing about it, Mark. And, you know, I want to talk really quick about the scheduling. This schedule this weekend for the Indians was really quirky. They flew into Seattle after playing a game on Tuesday, on Wednesday, I should say. Uh, they flew out of Cleveland late in the afternoon on Wednesday into Seattle that night. They played a four-game series in Seattle. Now they've got today off, and now they're playing in Kansas City. So they went all the way out west, which, in case you didn't know, Seattle's the farthest team to the west of any team in Major League Baseball, bar none. Just look at it geographically. They have the farthest team west. It's the longest plane ride It it takes the longest to get to Seattle from anywhere. And the Indians go out there and they play four games, and now they're coming back east. That just made no sense to me.
1: Well, they're only coming back east as far as Kansas City, or are they coming back to Cleveland to play Kansas City?
0: They're coming back to Kansas City, and then they come back to Cleveland this weekend. They'll be playing Baltimore this weekend. Which, by the way, I'm going on Friday night for Dollar Dog Night. Yippee.
1: Well, you you could eat up, and you won't have to <laughs> eat for the rest of the week. Then you could have nine or ten hot dogs, and <laughs> yeah. I I'd also love.
0: get an Ohio State hat.
1: <laughs> good, good. Yeah. But, but the scheduling—you would think that they would go. The thing that bothers me about the scheduling more than than that kind of thing—and there's always going to be an aberration when you have Seattle involved because it's so damn far away. What I don't understand <laughs> is when the schedulers will say, "Bring a Southern California team." At the beginning of the year in April, when you're likely to have snow in places that don't have domes, and they play they play the first home series in the cold weather climate. Why not not play it in the warm weather climate and then play in June in the cold weather climate? I I I wish somebody would explain that to me. It it, it would appear to make no difference scheduling wise. You just play. You're smart. Look at the calendar. And look at the weather forecast and say, "Wait, hmm, in Cleveland in April, snow is not an impossibility. In fact, it's a likelihood. In the first week in April, it's going to be freezing rain and snow. So bring the angels in to play Cleveland. That makes a lot of sense."
0: Yeah, it it does. It, it absolutely does. But Mark, I, w- I want to ask you about this one. Of the, and this is a two prong question. The NBA is looking into shortening their season. Now, the NFL wants to expand their season. Rob Manfred has come out and said that he wants to shorten the season as far as Major League Baseball is concerned. Now, the NBA is going to be the the season that is going to be the most difficult to shorten, by far. That That's going to be the most difficult. You know, I've proposed a couple of times this doubleheader idea, for Major League Baseball, and I just want to ask you, in, on, in in all your honesty, what is wrong with that idea that nobody seems to be talking about it—to have the day-night doubleheaders from the the middle of May through the middle of August—and you could shorten and give them more more of a, another eleven or twelve days off during the year, just simply by playing doubleheaders on Saturday, day-night doubleheaders. What is so wrong with that idea?
1: I don't think anything is wrong with it. I think it makes a lot of sense. I think everybody would be for it, including the players. You know, these guys play in 182 game, or 182 days. They play 160 games. And I'm telling you, it is by the end of the year, uh, you're dead on your feet. And you can't perform as well as you want. So it makes all kinds of sense to do that. The only thing I would add to that is if you're going to have double-headers, that the day of the double-header, you expand the rosters to 30 players. That way you can...
0: Do you think you'd have to go as high as 30? I was thinking 28.
1: I think you'd have to go to 30 because of the pitching. Because okay. you're, you're going to need more relief pitching coming in on that second game of a double-header. And if you use the same guys, they're done for a week. If you, know, if you use Chapman in both ends of the double-header, well, he's not going to pitch for the next two days. So, yeah, I would I would raise the the roster to 30 during the doubleheader days, and let them bring up players. But if you do that, I, I'm all for it. And I think the players would be all for it. Uh, you know, some guys, like Joey Votto, he can play both ends of a doubleheader. It's not going to hurt him playing at first base. Billy Hamilton might be a problem. He's patrolling center field. He's stealing a lot of bases. Uh, so you have to make those adjustments. But it's fair for both teams. And as long as it's equal for both teams, I... I don't know why it's not getting more credence. I think it's a great idea.
0: No, I agree with you. Okay, second question I've got. I'm going to incorporate the NBA. Hey, the, the finals are this week. I'm going to switch from baseball here real quick. Who is your pick this this year, Cleveland or Golden State?
1: I like Cleveland, I, I, and I'm not a homer here. Um, I think LeBron is the most unstoppable player that has existed since Michael Jordan. But Michael Jordan had a better supporting cast. And if Michael Jordan played on a lesser team, his numbers would have been unconscionable. But right now, there's nobody who can stop LeBron James. He's, what, 6'8", 260, and he plays like a guard. And physically, he's unstoppable. And I think in a short series like this, a seven-game series... You're going to see him be turned loose, and I don't think Golden State can stop him. Now, Golden State, at the same time, has some pretty good offensive players, too. So it's going to be an exciting playoff, And I, but uh, I really think LeBron cements himself, and he knows this. He wins this year with this team. He's in the Michael Jordan class, and uh, there's nobody who could argue that.
0: I agree. I've got, I've got the Cavs. Mark, very quickly, what's going on with the search for Dylan Michael?
1: Oh, a lot. Uh, We are having our our tryouts in Cincinnati uh, next week, the 9th and 10th in Cincinnati. And I think it's the 9th and 10th. Let me see here. It is the 10th and 11th, I take that back, in Cincinnati. Okay. And then in Bellbrook, Ohio, on the 15th and 16th, uh, we're going to have tryouts there as well. We have found our first player and it happens to be a female left-hand pitcher that we are, are signing. And uh, But we, we have met some outstanding young players, and we're very excited for the, uh, what's happening on, on the project. And uh, couldn't be more uh, grateful to the fans who have supported us on our LastedBat.com website, our search for Dylan Michael. And uh, the donations keep coming in every day, and uh, it's looking pretty good.
0: Yep, everything's looking good on that. Mark, real quickly, what is going on with the Reds this week?
1: The Reds go to Philadelphia tomorrow night for a three-game series. Then they come home and play San Diego at home and then uh, host Philadelphia the following week. So, as I said, these next nine games I think will go a long way to determining where the Reds are going to be at the end of the year.
0: And I think these next six games for the Indians are going to do the same thing because they're at Kansas City for a three-game set starting tomorrow night, and then this weekend they host the Baltimore Orioles. Mark, we'll talk about it again next Monday night. Don't forget your homework assignment. I got it, Dave.
1: All-Star game.
0: All right, we'll talk to you again next Monday night. Bye-bye. And we will also be back with you for the Ultimate Sports Talk Show. That will be Thursday night at 7 o'clock when we will preview the series between the Cavaliers and the Golden State Warriors. That's going to do it for us tonight. Our thanks to our producer, Greg Mitchell. And to Mark Donahue, but most of all, to you for listening. I'm Dave Mitchell. Until next week, have a good week, everybody. The
1: whiskey's Kids had won it. Bobby Thompson had done it. And Yogi read the comics all the
0: while. Rock and roll was being born. Marijuana we would scorn. So down on the corner, the national pastime went on trial. We're talking baseball. Klazuski Campanella talking baseball. Bobby Feller, the Scooter, the Barber, and the Nuke. They knew them all from Boston to Dubuque, especially Willie, Mickey, and the Duke.